Heavenly Father, again, we come to you in prayer this morning. Um, and it's just a, an honor and a privilege to be able to bring your word uh, before uh, such a great group of people. Lord, you have blessed us in many ways, and we know that that blessing has come through the work of your word in the hearts of us as believers. Father, when I look around this church, I see not just people standing up to be missionaries, but people standing up to serve uh, in various different ways, some of them very obvious and very um, in front of everybody, but some of them behind the scenes and very practical. Some people have uh, more of a gift for evangelism. Some have a gift for just loving the person next to them. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, be honored to see your people serving you in this way, that they would recognize that the things that they do here uh, are, aren't just things that are done for the people around them, but they're things that are done uh, in worship and praise of you. Well, Lord, we know as a church that we always have people that are serving. And so this morning I pray uh, for Nicole, Nicole Scoville and the volunteers in the nursery. Uh, it's an important ministry. It's an important job, uh, not just because it gives parents the opportunity to hear the word, uh, but it also establishes a loving environment for the kids where they can get uh, just a little taste of the gospel there, uh, that it can maybe spark uh, in them a, a flavor for it, that they would want to pursue more and more as they grow older and older, those kids. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the love and care of the whole nursery staff and the leadership of Nicole. Father, I pray also for our missionaries that we send out. This morning we pray for Anna Davis, who's with Youth with a Mission. I can't even uh, begin to imagine the impact she's had on the world as she has traveled around teaching people to study the Bible the way that we teach the Bible inductively, uh, teaching missionaries to teach the Bible in a verse-by-verse -verse fashion, and uh, doing this now for uh, going on 15 years, I believe, and uh, Lord, just the impact of class after class of students uh, then them going out into the mission field and doing the work, Lord, it's multiplying the effect. And we get to be a part of that through prayer, financial support, and encouragement to her. I pray for her as she's trying to make some decisions about a uh, sabbatical rest, uh, Lord, that she would make wise decisions and that she would be able to truly get a rest and that she would be uh, preparing future plans for her beyond that. We pray for other churches in town. I'm sure this isn't the only church full of great people. I think of uh, Sunrise Nazarene this morning and pray for Pastor Joe there uh, and uh, just the, the cool uh, history that that church has as a church that was two churches that came together to be one. I pray that you would continue to bless them as they have that unity going forward. And then for us this morning in our word as we're going through John chapter 2. Uh, that you would teach us about who you are, that we would be able to see in the scriptures and in the signs things that would encourage the believers to believe more, encourage the unbeliever to believe, uh, things that would encourage all of us to learn from your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. John chapter 2. Uh, this is tied for the shortest chapter in the Gospel of John. So this should be the easiest one for me to teach uh, going forward throughout this book, uh, be warned, there is a, a chapter we're going to hit, I think it's chapter 11, that is an entire page and a half of my Bible, so we'll see what happens when we get there. But for now, let's be happy that we're going through John chapter 2, that's only 25 verses. The Gospel of John we learned uh, last week, and I just want to kind of continue to repeat this idea was written so that you may believe. That's the purpose of this particular book. That's why it was written down, so that you may believe. So hopefully as we go through this book, uh, it will build on your faith. And then last week, as we saw uh, kind of the introduction to who Jesus was, uh, the things that we found, uh, first of all, is that Jesus is God. This is not just some 
great teacher. This is not just some great prophet. This wasn't just some great man. This is God who became man for the purpose of ministering to all of humanity. That's who Jesus was. Uh, we also learned last week that his, uh, one of his primary purposes was to take away the sins of the world. Remember, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we saw at the end of that chapter that he had called his first disciples. By the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Micah is just itching to give some away back there. So a uh, couple hands up here, a couple hands over there. We got all kinds of hands. Here's a hand, there's a hand, everywhere's a hand, hand. Oh, we missed one. <laughs> Right over here, Micah. Right back where you started. I'm just going to watch this. This is kind of fun. Now he's out of Bible. He's got to go get another one. And he's off. Look at him go. Uh, anyway, right. <laughs> he's back over here. <laughs> this is so fun. <laughs> All right. I didn't get a look over at this side. Anybody over here need a Bible? Okay. All right. That was almost an auctioneer voice I had going on there. But... Um, <laughs> But anyway, Jesus is going to be calling his first disciples. Uh, there are about six of them in chapter one that we met. Uh, and so now when we move into chapter two, uh, we're going to see just, I think, kind of a fascinating thing as Jesus now is going to bring those disciples with him as he begins to kind of travel around, uh, which we have to really keep in mind the context there that these are guys who had a life before they met Jesus. Then they met Jesus, and they just start following him wherever he goes. They dropped what they were doing to be with Jesus. And so I think it's a powerful picture. Uh, it's painted like this in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, oops, I said wine in church, sorry. <laughs> When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Man, I did it again. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus, just calling six disciples, just starting out in his ministry, is going to travel now to another town. It's going to take them some time to basically walk there to this other town in order that he can attend a wedding service with his mother. And I think this is kind of just a neat little picture of what real discipleship looks like. Real discipleship goes beyond the walls of the church building or a classroom. Real discipleship involves every aspect of your life. Jesus has opportunity to share his life with these disciples. They're going to learn so much from him. 
just by being with him in social circumstances and also when nobody else is around. They're going to learn just from watching how he lives. Uh, when I was in youth ministry, I read a book on youth ministry one time, uh, and it basically described youth ministry as building dog houses. And what he says there is this idea that when he would have a chore to do, he would just ask some of the teenagers to join him at his house while he was doing these chores. And the author was describing one time when he was building a doghouse not well, and uh, he was kind of struggling through it, and yet these young people watched how he had to go through the process of slamming his thumb with a hammer and not saying curse words. He had to go through this whole process of being frustrated, but still maintaining his cool. They were able to see by his example these very simple things. That's what's happening with the disciples now. As Jesus goes to a wedding, can you think of any stranger place to begin discipleship training? But this is what Jesus actually does. He brings them with his mom, and they're going to hang out at a wedding. Now, at this wedding, they have an awkward social moment. Uh, They have gathered together wine for all of the guests, and uh, I would say they've gathered together a lot of wine. And here's why I say that. Uh, In in, uh, a Hebrew wedding at that time and a Jewish wedding at that time, the wedding was not just a 20-minute ceremony followed by free dinner, then everybody go home. For them, a Jewish wedding ceremony was this week-long festival. It was this week-long party. And so they've got to provide for all of those guests because think about it. If you want family to travel to your wedding and they're living in a culture where you have to walk to get there, or maybe ride on an animal to get there, it's not convenient to go for an hour-long wedding and dinner. And so you have kind of this cool festival where they're all kind of gathered together. Everybody's come out for this. The groom's family or the bride's family, however that worked out, has purchased food for these people. They've purchased the wine for these people. And here they are, and it's already run out. They've already run out of wine. So Jesus' mom says to Jesus, uh-oh, they're out of wine. But she obviously looks at him in such a way that he knows she wants him to do something about it. So it wasn't just a matter of fact, hey, they're out of wine. It was, hey, they're out of wine, and I think you should do something about it. And I have no earthly idea what she thinks Jesus is going to do about this. There's no indication prior to this that he had been doing miraculous things that would make her think that he could somehow miraculously take care of this. There's no indication of that in Scripture whatsoever. All we have is a mom looking to her son saying, fix it. So Jesus responds, and it sounds horrible in English. It's not intended to be horrible because Jesus says, woman. But I don't think that's really how it would have come across in the Hebrew. It would have been just more of a very common thing, just a very common phrase there, but it just sounds bad in English. Uh, What does this have to do with us My hour has not yet come. In other words, Jesus is saying to her, it's not really time for me to start showing off yet. It's not time for me to become so known in the community and in the world that it's going to create enemies who are going to eventually put me to death. It's not time for that. It's time right now for a wedding. That's what time it is. And then, in very mom fashion, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. So she heard his request, and it was denied. (laughs) And then Jesus actually does something about it. If you could just stop for a moment and imagine 
the picture of submission that we see right here. Here is Jesus, 30 years old. This isn't little boy Jesus. This is 30 years old Jesus. His mom has requested him to do something. He has requested otherwise. He has lodged his disagreement with her request. She has set aside that disagreement and told him what to do anyway. And 30-year-old man Jesus, who, by the way, is God, submits himself to his mother. Think about that picture of submission. I don't know how cool you think you are, but you're not as cool as 30-year-old Jesus, who is God. And when 30-year-old Jesus, who is God, has his mother request something of him, he does it. It's a great little pattern for us, by the way, of submission. Uh, let me explain it to you in, a, in just very simple terms. It's okay if somebody asks you to do something. It's okay to lodge your disagreement. But if they have authority over you and they hear and push aside your disagreement, you're still to submit to them. Now, there are always a few biblical exceptions. And number one, uh, actually, the simplest way to see it is if they're asking you to do something that is sinful in God's eyes, or I would say illegal in the government's eyes, then I wouldn't say you would have to submit in those moments. That the government is a higher authority, it seems, in some people's minds over mom, although it depends on your mom. But in all cases, God is the higher authority over mom. So Jesus now is in this strange position where it's not time for himself to make himself known to everybody, but his mom has asked him to do something and he essentially understands the only way I can really fix this on a carpenter's salary, it's going to be a miracle, right? So after lodging his complaint, he finds a way to both fulfill his promises, his responsibilities to the mission that God has given him, and to honor his mother in submitting to her. There's great power in the humility that we see in Jesus here. It's great power. That's really kind of a side note as we go through this passage. Uh, the next thing Jesus does then after he submits himself to his mom, uh, he sees these six water pots. These water pots are uh, between 20 and 30 gallons of water each, which means the 60 of them are somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. It makes mention even in the passage that he tells them to fill it all the way up to the brim. So they're getting all of the water in those they can. Now those were typically used for the purpose of, of Jewish purification ceremonies. You see this in other places in the New Testament, but uh, Jesus' disciples were mocked because they didn't wash their hands before they ate, right? Uh, and that's what this came down to. It was this ritualistic cleansing of hands where they would just pour water over their hands so they could say they're ritualistically clean so they're not ingesting the world into themselves. That's what those water pots were for. Well, Jesus is going to take these Jewish water pots for purification. He's going to have them filled with water. And I don't know if he just like snaps his finger or he does the little nose twitch or whatever he's got to do, but he somehow waves his hand over this or something, but in some way he turns that water into wine. And if you grew up in a certain background, that messes with you a little bit. 
but it's okay because somewhere along the line, somebody told you that's not really wine, it's grape juice, it's okay. I'm telling you, it's wine. Uh, They might have told you, well, the alcohol content is so low that you wouldn't actually get drunk. I'm telling you, it's wine. I'm telling you, if you drink too much of it, you will get drunk. That's why later in the passage it says, do not get drunk with wine. (laughs) That's what it is. Again, messes a little bit with our theology a little bit. It just makes us a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. But let's remember that we're dealing with Jesus who is God. So there must be in his mind, there must be in his understanding a difference between wine and drunkenness. He doesn't find wine sinful. He finds drunkenness sinful. And if you struggle with alcoholism, one cup of wine can often lead to drunkenness. It may not be in the one cup, but it's the four, five, six that follow because that first cup was so good. Now, I don't drink, and it's not because I'm holy or anything like that. I just think it tastes bad. But I know for a fact if I was a person who was given to wine, I would struggle with it. I'm a person who's given to Coca-Cola. And I go through these phases. I'm in one of them right now. I'm not drinking soda at all. I've just got to get it out of my life. It gives me the burps, makes me fat. It's horrible. And so I'm about a month now, no soda, doing great. Here's what I know from experience a hundred times over. Someday in the near future, I'm going to have one. And then the next day, I'm going to have a (laughs) six-pack. And then I'm going to do that for a year. And then I'm going to go, why do I drink this stuff? I'm fat and I'm burpy again. (laughs) And then I'm going to repent. And then I'm going to go back to it. So I'm not telling everybody to drink wine. I'm just saying uh, the, the situation is such, you have to understand that this is the real stuff wine. Because when they take this to the head waiter to taste it, this isn't some watered down wine. The head waiter goes, wait a second, this is the good stuff. This is the stuff you serve early in the party, not the stuff you serve after everybody's already had some. And the translation here in in the New American Standard is, uh, when the people have drunk freely, uh, I believe that was put in there to soften the blow. Verse 10 has a note in my Bible where it translates literally, when the people have become drunk. (laughs) So this was the real deal stuff. Jesus somehow miraculously took six pots of 20 to 30 gallons of water, miraculously changes it into wine as an act of submission to his mom. It's, It's a level of humility. It's pretty powerful. But it's not the most important part of all of this. What I love about this is he kind of keeps it secret. The, the servants are really the only ones that knew and probably the disciples and certainly his mom. But they're just not a, he didn't just like make a big scene of it. Everybody look at me. I'm going to turn water into wine. No, because it's not his time yet. So he's going to do this somehow secretly, somehow in a private fashion. So that it's not recognized that he was the one who did it. So that not everybody is uh, coming to him saying, wow, look at this. 
And so it uh, kind of allows this moment for most of the people in the crowd that day, they're just going to assume that the bride and groom are amazing hosts. Because <laughs> that 120 to 180 gallons of water just became 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. I'm not up on my keggery. <laughs> Keganations? I don't know. Keganisms? But I think each one of those pots is bigger than a keg. <laughs> yeah, I heard an oh yeah. <laughs> Which is different than an amen. Let's not get too confused there. <laughs> but here's where it becomes important in verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. This goes back to what we saw at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. Uh, it said this, we read it last week, I'll read it again. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The purpose John has, he's selected in this gospel seven miraculous signs, seven miraculous works of Jesus Christ to demonstrate that he's not just some great teacher. He's not just some nice moral man. He's not just some prophet. He's not just anything. He is God. This sign was given to us so that we may believe. Now, in the moment, the sign seems to have been given for the purpose of the disciples to believe. It says here again, verse 11, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So they knew what he did. They obviously in that moment saw that and said, This is different than what John the Baptist was doing. I mean, he was cursing out the Pharisees and dunking people in water, and that was awesome. This guy just did something impossible, something that only God could do. He turned water into wine. This sign exists so that people would believe. There's going to be seven signs in this book. In chapter 2, he's going to turn water into wine. Chapter 4, healing of the son of one of the royal officials in chapter 5. He's going to heal a paralyzed man in chapter 6. He's going to feed 5,000. Then he's going to turn around and walk on water. Chapter 9, he's going to heal a man who's born blind. And then in chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So there's going to be these signs all throughout the, uh, all throughout the book to prove that Jesus is not just some other guy. When you run across people who say, oh yeah, I really like that Jesus guy. He's really cool. I've read all kinds of stuff about him. But in the end, he's just another guy. The whole purpose of these books is to prove to you he's not just another guy. It says it this way in verse 11. He did these signs and manifested 
his glory. Let's take two words there and make sure we understand them. Manifested means to make apparent or obvious. These signs made apparent or made obvious his glory. Now let's look at this word glory, how it's used in Scripture. It's so clear throughout the Old Testament that glory is a reference. It's a visual reference to God. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Moses is going to say this in Exodus. I think it's in Exodus chapter 38. Uh, but Moses is going to say, I pray you, Lord, show me your glory. And what they're saying in this moment, when Jesus turned the water into the wine, they recognized him. It was apparent. It was obvious to him. It was a revelation of his glory. It was a revelation that he was God. Now there's more to it than just the signs. There's other things that can lead us to believe. So we'll keep going here in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned the tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of, of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the next thing we see Jesus doing, it's now the Passover season. He comes into Jerusalem as all the Jews who were able would to celebrate the Passover as required in the Old Testament law that they would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. When Jesus gets to the temple, it appears to the crowd that he kind of goes crazy. He makes himself a whip and starts chasing people out of the temple. Specifically, he's chasing out those who are selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he's selling out money changers. And then he actually chased out the, uh, the, the animals, the sheep and the oxen, which actually probably made it easier to chase the rest out because once you start a stampede, everybody's leaving anyway, right? So what's the deal with this? Other than what it says here, he has a zeal for God's house. Well, here's the deal. In the Old Testament law, you were supposed to bring a sacrifice for your sins. However, there is an exclusion if you live a long ways away. You can instead bring money to Jerusalem when you get there for the Passover, and you can purchase an animal to be sacrificed. Because it's hard to drive your animals for your whole family from wherever you live all the way to Jerusalem. So you could just show up with money in hand and then purchase an animal. So some industrious people thought to themselves, hmm, I could get in the pre-approved sacrifice business. I could sell kosher animals. Well, they're drumming up business like that, and then they come up with this great idea, you know... We also have to approve which animals are sacrificed and which ones aren't good enough to be sacrificed. If we just tell everybody that their animal isn't good enough, but oh, by the way, we'll sell you a pre-approved one, now we can make a little bit more profit. And you know what else we could do? We could say, we don't want your Roman money or your Samaritan money. 
we only want good old-fashioned temple Jewish money. And so now we can kind of create a bank where people bring their money with them, but their money's no good here. It's defiled by the world. Because you know the Bible says that the root of all evil is money. No, it's the love of money, which we're seeing within these guys. So they create this system where they build in this exchange rate where they can decide what the exchange rate is. We'll take your filthy world money and we'll give you in exchange some of this holy money so that you can now, having wasted a certain percentage, spend even more money on a pre-approved kosher dove or lamb or ox to be sacrificed. So they had turned this into quite a great little business, quite quite a great little system. Well, Jesus is... He's not having it. So he chases them all out of there. The importance of this, though, is what the disciples recognized in this. In verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for the house of God. That's a quote out of Psalm 69.9. It could also be a reference to the book of Ezra where Ezra says something very similar. Uh, But this idea is that they're starting to see not just the miraculous signs of Jesus, but they're also starting to see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. They're starting to recognize him not just because of the miracles, but because he can match up to what was expected of the Messiah. Now, as you can imagine, if you're to chase everybody out of the temple, there's going to be some people that have a problem with this. So in verse 18, it says, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So his disciples now are just retelling this story that these are the things that helped them believe. It's not just the signs, it's that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. And so in here now, we recognize the disciples weren't the only ones asking these questions. When Jesus chases these people out, the Jews ask this question, what sign do you show us to prove that you have authority to do this? Prove to us that you can do this, who you are, that you are who, you're, who you're pretending to be, who you are acting like. You're acting like you're the Messiah or something. So show us a sign. Jesus said, well, here's a sign kill me, and I'll come back from the dead. Now, he says it in a way where it doesn't sound like that initially. He says, tear down this temple, and three days later, I will raise it. Of course, we, seeing this backwards, are seeing this in hindsight, looking through the cross to this, that makes total sense to us. But for them who hadn't yet seen Jesus suffer and die on the cross and resurrect three days later, they would look at this and say, tear down this temple? You're talking about this temple that took us forever to build? You think you could build it in three days? We couldn't even tear it down in three days. But the disciples later realized after Jesus had risen from the dead that he was talking about his body, the temple. If you destroy this temple, I'll raise from the dead. One of the greatest signs that Jesus is the Messiah 
is that he resurrected from the dead. It's one of the greatest signs. It's, it's a fulfillment of Scripture, but it's also a sign of who he was. So the disciples saw this, uh, and when they, when they saw that and the sign was asked for, uh, they believed now. Uh, the disciples of Jesus saw this, and they believed that he was who he said he was. But this is the interesting thought to me. That tells us that Jesus knew going into this that he wasn't just going to die for the sins of the world, but Jesus knew going into this that he was going to be resurrected from the dead. Some of us maybe have had this kind of false conception that God's somehow up in heaven just reacting to things that are happening, that he doesn't necessarily have, he has a vague plan, kind of like most of us. We have a vague plan, but we'll kind of hash it out as things happen. That's how I preach. I have a vague plan. I read the passage, I study the passage so I know enough about it where I can talk freely about it. I put some structure to it. But the details, those will just flow, hopefully, out of my mouth at the right moment. That's kind of how some of us kind of view God in heaven. He's got this general plan in mind, but the details. And so we kind of imagine him up in heaven like playing chess or checkers with the universe. And like the universe does something, he's like, oh, I have to respond to that. Oh, I have to respond to that. And so then we think to ourselves, well, the Jews killed Jesus. Now what's God going to do? He's like, that's fine. I'll raise him back up. That wasn't his reaction. That was always his plan. It's evidence here, though, that Jesus knew that this was always the plan. That when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as one were together in eternity past before creation, that they devised this plan where Jesus would come to earth, live amongst men, allow them to kill him, and then he would resurrect from the dead to prove who he was. It was always part of the plan. So we continue on now, and we see this plan playing out here. There's a thing I'd like to point out to you in this. As Jesus describes his body as a temple, uh, let's not forget that's also how he describes our body. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, if you want to turn there, I can read it to you if you don't. But 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Think of this as believers. We're told doctrinally that everybody who believes in Jesus Christ, everybody who is saved, is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God or to say it a better way, to indwell by the Holy Spirit who is God. The Holy Spirit who is God is living inside of each one of us, which makes us a temple of God. Here's an interesting question for you. If Jesus drove the corruption out of the early temple, out of the earthly, physical building, the temple, the question I would ask you is, what is the corruption that Jesus would drive out of the temple that is you? I want you to really think about that question. If you are a temple of God... Is there any corruption in you 
that God would seek to drive out of you. The scripture tells us how this happens. That if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's how you drive the corruption, the sin, out of your life. You confess it and you receive the forgiveness of God. I think it's sometimes too easy for us to dwell on our sin, but to never really do anything about our sin. But I would suggest we follow in the footsteps of our Savior, of our Lord, and we drive the sin out. For some of you, as I start mentioning corruption and sin in your life, for some of you, some very obvious things began to appear in your mind. Those things need to be confessed to God so that you can receive forgiveness, and then you need to live within that confession and that forgiveness, which means uh, it's not enough to say, okay, you're right, I've been extorting from my boss. I'm going to confess that as sin. I'm going to receive that forgiveness. Good thing it's not Monday, because Monday I'm extorting again. That's not what that looks like. When you confess it as sin, when you seek forgiveness, God would tell you to then now walk in that forgiveness. Walk as a person who's been forgiven of that sin. In other words, you're going to put an end to it. You're going to drive it out of your life whatever that may be, and I can't speak into each of your lives, but I know that the Spirit of God can. And so my hope is that He's revealing those things to you even now. And here we see now in verse 23, just continuing on with the same theme of belief. In verse 23 it says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so uh, the author is just pointing out, John's just pointing out to us here, I told you about a couple of signs. I've told you some of the things that Jesus is going to do, but the same thing he's going to say at the end of the book, I could never tell you all the things that Jesus did, but just know this, Throughout this first Passover season, Jesus is actually going to be performing many signs, and from that, many people will believe in him. What we have in the scriptures is only a partial record of all the stuff that Jesus did. John says at one point, he said, there's probably not enough books in the world to tell you all the things that Jesus did. But the result was the same for those who recognized those signs they believed in his name. For those who made that connection between the scripture and the miraculous, they, they might have had some people over the years who did some things that kind of matched up to scripture. They might have had some people that from time to time did something that seemed quite miraculous. But boy, those, those things coming together, the miraculous and the fulfillment of scripture, 
led them to believe that he was the Messiah. It led them to believe in his name, which I think is great. Believe in his name, and his name, Jesus, would be said, Yahshua, which would be translated, God saves. Led them to believe in his name, which says, God saves. That's kind of a a powerful picture. But all throughout this second chapter, there's that connection to the signs and the scripture leading people to believe. For some of you, you already believe. Some of you already believe. Now this can strengthen your belief. I find that happening to me over and over and over again. Uh, I'm like, I believe fully in God. And then I read something in scripture. I'm like, wow, now I really believe fully in God. More fully than I fully believed before. It kind of happens to me over and over. But for others of you, you're still trying to sort all this out. You're thinking to yourself, all right, I've come to church like I promised. But what difference is it going to make? If Jesus is who he says he is, who he proves himself to be, then there's nothing else to do but to believe in his name. To follow him now as your Lord. Just like these disciples who were over here hanging out with John the Baptist, loving life. But John the Baptist kept saying, there's somebody after me. There's somebody after me. The guy that's coming, he's better than me. He's awesome. He's cool. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Just wait. And then Jesus walks by and John the Baptist goes, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the disciples shift from following John to following Jesus. And then as they're following him, all of a sudden he starts doing all of these miraculous things and living like the Messiah was supposed to live. And they started to believe. For those of you today who've been struggling with this, the scripture makes clear who Jesus is. He is God. Romans 10.9 tells us if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, which means he's now the boss, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which demonstrates the power of God in that he resurrected him, but it also fulfills this promise that he's promised to resurrect us from the dead to eternal life. You will be saved. Saved from what? The penalty of our sins. The penalty that is due us because of our sins. And all you have to do is believe and confess that Christ is Lord. But for all of us, I would ask this question, is there any corruption that needs to be driven out of us? I think there is. We're going to pray here in just a minute. I'm going to have the elders that are here be available either at the prayer room or up front, wherever they're more comfortable. If you have things that you need to confess... Just right where you are, while other people are singing, just, it's fine. If you don't want to look too conspicuous, you can raise your hands and stand. Make it look like you're singing. But just confess those sins to God. If you've not believed before, but you would like to take a step of faith to receive Christ as Lord, just come talk to one of these 
elders that are going to be up front. They'd love to walk you through that process. If you have other needs in your life, if you have prayer needs, if you have uh, needs that you need input or advice for things that are going on in your life, we'd love to help you with that as well. If all these people are busy, you're surrounded by people who love Jesus. So just tap somebody on the shoulder and say, look, I got problems. And just ask them if they would pray for you or give you godly counsel. Let's respond in this way. Let's pray. Oh, wait, wait. We can't pray yet. That was close. Next Sunday. (laughs) We're going to be in John chapter 3, and that is going to be a little bit more of a challenge. So the more times you read through John chapter 3, the more prepared you're going to be to hear the sermon. Uh, I would suggest reading through it every day in various translations or listening to it online or just have one of your friends read it to you. You know, whatever you got to do. I actually watch it on Netflix. So there's the Gospel of John movie on Netflix and the guy's just reading it and there's actors acting it out while he's reading it. It's perfect. I do that every week. If you don't have Netflix, you can actually Google the Gospel of John on YouTube. There's another older version, does the same thing there. But find some way to continually put this word into your heart this week to prepare you for the word next week. Uh, I'm assigning a memory verse each week, uh, but if you find something better in there, pick what you want. I'm assigning John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I was going to do John 3.16, but I thought that's too easy. You already know it, so I'll give you another one. But if there's another passage in there that's just so important to you, that just is valuable in your faith, go ahead and memorize that one. Uh, And then I would say this book was written so that you would believe. So invite someone who you love so that they can either read the Bible with you or attend church with you so that they can hear this word so that they could believe as well. Now, here's the tough question. Did anybody try to memorize the verse this last week? Woohoo, a couple hands, all right. Oh, there's one of these hands. I I tried. (laughs) And did anybody do any of the reading this week? I'm not saying you had to read it all seven times, but you at least read through it this week. See, we're making progress here, guys. We're growing internally as a church. We're strengthening in our lives. John 2.22 was the verse. Does anybody want to spout it off? No? Woo, Gail's going. Amen. Awesome. I probably won't put somebody on the spot every week, but just know I'm... I'm Uh, I was going to say forcing, encouraging the staff to memorize these verses as well. So you're welcome to put them on the spot. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for allowing us to to be in your word. I thank you that uh, you've given us clear signs, clear, clear scriptural fulfillment in your son, Jesus Christ that you've given us the faith to believe. Oh, Father, for myself, I know that it changed everything about my life. I'm a completely different human being because you were here and you revealed yourself to me. I'm praying today that whether it's people in this room or people that'll hear these teachings later online or maybe get a CD, 
that through the gospel of John, there will be people who will come to believe who didn't believe before. That all of us will be built up in our faith. And this morning, Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray that your spirit would be convicting us of sin. Convincing us to confess those sins to you and to live like children of God. Lord, would you refine our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.